Hello, and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. Our topic today is China and the possible unraveling of its economy. Our guest is Nick Sargent, economic consultant for Fort Washington Investment Advisors, formerly international economist and investment strategist there, as well as several prominent Wall Street firms. Nick is also a contributing columnist to The Hill and Forbes and the author of three books, including Global Shocks, an Investment Guide for Turbulent Markets. Nick, welcome to WealthTrack. Consuela, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You are asserting both in person and in print that China's economic development model is unraveling, and that is a huge deal for the world's economy and markets. So first of all, give us a brief China 101. What is China's economic development model? So to uh, answer that, you really have to go back to the late 1970s when Mao Zedong, who founded the country, uh, but pursued um, very poor economic policies that kept it backward. Uh, and he was succeeded by Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping was the great pragmatist. In other words, he was loyal to communism, but he understood one thing that Mao didn't is people need incentives to get the maximum out of that. So the essence of the Chinese miracle that he is considered the architect, I think is really threefold. One, he created incentives both on the farms and on businesses for people to produce more. On the farms, everything used to be collectivized. Right. But he allowed then that farmers could then have their own plots for themselves and they could sell the excess. Okay. And what Private happened enterprise, is, Nick. <laughs> you, you got it, as I said. Entrepreneurship, say. which the Chinese that, are very well that, known for as a culture. That, that's exactly right. And it wasn't exactly capitalism in the American sense in that you didn't necessarily own all the means of production, but they did allow some private entrepreneurship to take hold. So that was reform number one. The uh, second thing uh, that he did was, okay, we've got to invest in public infrastructure and we've got to invest in our people. We, we got to improve their overall education level. China used to have a pretty high savings rate. Why? Because the answer was they didn't have social security. They didn't have um, anything else. So the question was that where do you put that money? And so basically public projects and education. But then the third key ingredient, and here he borrowed from the Asian model of development. It's China isn't going to produce for the domestic marketplace. It wasn't big enough. We're going to produce for the world market. We're going to produce goods and then ship them abroad. And what he did was two things. He created, they called it free enterprise zones. So they could bring goods, raw materials into these areas and then manufacture items and then ship them right back out. So that was part of it. The other part was he encouraged foreign direct investment to come into China because he really understood and appreciated the importance of technological know-how. So these were the three components. What's changed? How are they being challenged? The reform process continued with his successors in the 1990s and into the first part of the 2000s. But then when the global financial crisis came, China's leaders began to reassess, well, wait a minute, does the West 
really, do we want to follow that model? So for a while, they kind of waffle. But then you have the current uh, Chinese leader, uh, Xi Jinping, take over in 2014. And what we saw initially then was he wasn't a reformer. And one of the things that he did then was to begin to favor the state-owned enterprises versus the private enterprises. And again, how does that undermine uh, the economy somewhat? The answer is they're far less efficient than the private sector enterprises. But really, um, the second thing is we talked about public investment that was going on. Well, what went on for, for four decades, the model was build, build, build. So they build apartment complexes everywhere. And the idea was to get people off the of farms into the, the cities. But mm -hmm. really what happened was tremendous overbuilding. So you began to see you know, stories about ghost towns. So the long story that right now is going on and is the real reason that people are wondering is their property sector, it accounts for as much as 30% of the economy. And it's where maybe 70% of people's savings go. They don't, they don't have social security. They don't have well-developed stock and bond markets. So they put it into real estate. Well, we're now seeing uh, that the real estate sector is in deep trouble with some of the premier developers, uh, including Evergrande filing bankruptcy. Okay, Great. so that's strike two. Strike three is what happened on the international front that's made the uh, environment less conducive to Chinese exports. And well, first we had the COVID problem and that created supply chain problems and, and multinationals said, well, we better diversify away from relying entirely on China. But then comes, of course, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then we're getting um, an increase in tensions between the U.S. government and the Chinese government. So what we're now seeing is a slowdown in Chinese exports and a slowdown in foreign investment into China. The reason I say the development model is unraveling, it's not one thing. I would say it's a variety of things hitting at the same time. You don't believe that the weakening is reversible anytime soon. And why don't you? Just to be fair, there are some people who still say, oh, this is just a cyclical slowdown. And right. Just to, be, uh, just to be clear, what's the argument? Well, the argument is that the reason that China has been weak for the past uh, few years was they had the zero COVID policy. We all remember when we had shutdowns of uh, U.S. businesses, how that was. So they didn't actually contract, but basically their economy was running well below the growth rate it experienced before. When they finally uh, got rid of that policy at the end of last year, all the forecasters were saying, well, we're going to see a pop just like we saw in the U.S. Well, that seemed to be the case for the first quarter. And then all of a sudden, in the second quarter, continuing into the third quarter, we've seen uh, a slowdown. And what's been the major factor? I would say it was the weakening of the property sector where people see home prices uh, declining and that causes consumers uh, to turn cautious. 
So there are some people that say, well, in the past, China would pursue policies and they'd stimulate. Well, Consuelo, the problem is they did that from 2008 to present. And in the process, their total debt of the country, all sectors, including the government, went from about one and a half times their economy size to three times. It doubled in 15 years. Total debt to GDP. That's correct. Your estimate is about 300%. Yeah. So that's, that's quite substantial. Right. So the bottom line is in the past, they would try to take steps to bolster the property market. But what we're finding today is they're more reluctant to do so. And I think it's because they realize we've got a problem. We've got overbuilding. So if we continue and put more money into this, it just makes the problem worse down the road, not better. So I don't see the policy uh, response that, that we used to see. What I'm looking at, and investors are as well, is what's still the engine of growth in their economy? It's still that they have a very high saving rate and a very high investment rate. If I put in one more machine into the country, how much does that add to the output of the economy? We're experiencing diminishing returns. There are structural reasons that China's economy can't grow at 5%. And um, I mentioned two of them. The third one is China, of course, have the biggest population in the world, um, almost uh, 1.4 billion. But now um, what we're seeing is because of the, the one-child policy from the past this is now that's turned stagnant. And the projections then are that the population and the labor force start to slow. So if you try to project and just say, based on labor, capital, and overall efficiency, in each case, you can't sustain the growth that you previously were able to sustain, which was miraculous for about four decades. Nick Sargent, veteran international economist and strategist, is with us. When I talk to China bulls, they are believers in the long-term China economic growth story. And basically, they're saying that regardless of what's happening politically, that the, the economy really has changed, that it is much more consumer-oriented internally, less dependent upon exports, um, that there is a recognition how important that entrepreneurship and that private efforts, how important they are that even though we're seeing some high-profile crackdowns on, for instance, the China tech giants, that it's no different than what the EU and the U.S. is doing and looking at Amazon and Google, and that in order to stay in power, that the, the government has to encourage private enterprise and growth, and that they're not going to let that end. They, they would cite what's happened to us in, in 07 and 08 with our housing bubble, and that this is just one of those blips that happens um, as, as an economy recovers and transforms itself. What about those arguments? I would put them, Consuela, in the category wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. I think there might have been a period where I would have said it was possible, to be fair. 
um, say, let's go back to uh, 2015 or so, uh, there was a slowdown. And you did have people then question, was it cyclical or was it structural? And uh, if I may pat myself on the back, again, I'm not an alarmist. Uh, my conclusion was, um, I said, I've heard many times where people are telling me the miracle is over, it was show me the proof. And so I, I didn't jump onto that, uh, that bandwagon. What I feel is that, uh, let's take the tech, the entrepreneurs or so, and ask the question, what's happened to Jack Ma? Right. Sure. So it'd be like us saying, uh, Bill Gates, uh, disappeared. he's not around. Yes, he disappeared. The uh, CEO of Evergrande, their biggest property developer, is now under uh, investigation. He may have bankrupted the country, but, uh, you know, he's now facing potential criminal charges and the like. So I just think they're plain wrong. They're misreading what the goals are of Xi Jinping, the current leader. He is more interested in consolidation of political power in China than he is about rapid growth rate, even though he'll pay lip service to that. But if you judge him by what he's done rather than by what he says, I just find those arguments to be wishful thinking. In the past, I wouldn't have made his strong statements as I'm making today. Let's go to the property a problem. Um, the optimists may say, oh, well, look, we got through that in the U.S. The pessimists would say this is looking a lot like the Japanese bubble, mm -hmm. property bubble bursting in the early 90s. And that took a decade to correct. Is it going to be as bad as Japan's? I don't think so. I still remember the emperor's palace was supposed to be worth everything in uh New York State or whatever. I mean, it was just ludicrous valuations. So I'm not arguing that China's valuations are as extreme. But what I am saying is this isn't a cyclical slowdown in the property sector that right. is the one of the key engines of growth. This is um, a serious problem that is going to take years to correct. And the, the politics of China are very different than they are in Japan as well. Japan's stock market still hasn't recovered, right? It's finally having a good year this year. But um, you're absolutely right, Consuelo. When the uh, stock market bubble burst at the same time the real estate bubble did. The Nikkei um, was at, what, 40,000? Yes. And it, we're, not, we're nowhere near that. You're right. absolutely correct. I went for several decades saying I cannot recommend Japanese stocks to our clients. And because some people would tell me they're cheap. And right. my response to that was, yes, and they're cheap for a good reason. And um, right now, uh, Japan is actually having a good year and I'm kind of softening that maybe this isn't a bad time. One of the reasons Japan's doing better is that investors are saying, well, wait a minute, if China's in trouble, both the economy's struggling and they've got the geo politics going on, uh, maybe Japan becomes a more attractive investment haven to diversify to in Asia. Some people are saying that China is uninvestable at this point because of the change in its political leadership right. over the last decade, 
and also all of the economic challenges that you've just mentioned. Is China uninvestable? There, I don't go that far. I don't want to tell somebody, don't look at any companies within China, because again, right. they do have some world-class companies. What I think in the past, when you know people would refer to um, China as uninvestable, you know, what they'd say is, look, the transparency, access to information you have in China is not nearly the quality, of course, we're accustomed to. Uh, in the United States, where we have much stronger corporate governance. And it's getting worse, Nick. It's not getting better. Absolutely. That's what I uh, was also uh, going to say is that that now, to me, it's what how's the Chinese government going to respond? And what I'm saying is, you know, again, you you cited the optimists that, oh, they've been here before. They're going to figure it out. I'm just not convinced. And at the time this question came up about whether China was investable, the two protagonists in this debate was a fellow named George Soros, who basically took the argument that I am that, wait a minute, this country is discouraging the private sector. And then you had some large asset managers in the U.S. who were saying, oh, no, no, this is, uh, you know, this is still the China that we know. And so that, you know, that debate really got underway again when they did the clampdown of many of their tech entrepreneurs. And, you know, so at the time I had to make up my mind, who do I listen to? And my conclusion was, I thought Soros was more likely to be correct. And we're now three years into this. So that's why I say I'm not making a, a judgment based on six months. I'm making a judgment on what I've seen beginning when she took power that immediately favors state-owned enterprises versus private. Then he does the clamp down on the, the technology, leading technology companies. And then, you know, what happens when things aren't looking so good? So again, what China was always proud, well, we employ everybody. Well, now youths, uh, so people uh, say ages 18 to 24, the, um, the unemployment rate, think of this, is over 20% for that age group. So what is the Chinese government's response? We don't publish that data anymore. Exactly. So again, lack of transparency. There's a famous saying in investing uh, that diversification is the one free lunch. And so investors, especially value investors, are looking at what's going on in China, looking at what's going on in the emerging markets, and they're saying this is the time to invest in the emerging market, times like this, that you should invest in China. And of course, they've been saying that now for several years as the U.S. market has basically outperformed the emerging markets by a long shot. What about the diversification argument and, and how do we handle our investing in emerging markets. And I'm asking you as both an international economist and also uh, you've been an international strategist, a global strategist as well. Um, I would say the following, Consuelo, when I got into the business in the 1970s and the early 1980s, I was a proselytizer for Americans' need to diversify. And um, so you're speaking to the choir. What, What the proponents of international diversification have failed to acknowledge is that as we saw the world economy become more globalized, 
the correlations of markets globally went up significantly. I saw it first on, because well, as you know, I, I manage global bond fund and I go, my God, when I was trying to decide whether to invest in Germany, I go, wait a minute, the German market's moving more off U.S. unemployment data than it is off German data. You have to temper then and say there's less diversification benefit, I think, than in the past. Let's go to emerging markets. It's been a tough year. You can say, well, so what? But think of the environment. Rising U.S. and world interest rates. Not slow down in the U.S., but slow down outside the U.S. And now I think if China weakens, so goes Asia. And three, super strong U.S. dollars. So that's generally been a tough environment for emerging economies because often they borrow in dollars and therefore they get whacked both on interest rates and the currency that they have to repay is more expensive. I'm trying to see how the world is changing. And China is a central part of the story. Here, the fastest growth engine of the world is now slowing. That's part one. But then part two is since the geotensions post-Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we now have people changing their supply change globally. And again, away from China. And there's some losers and there's some winners. Well, who gets hit the most? It's the suppliers of raw materials and commodities to China. So that's going to be some emerging market economies. Name names. Those economies oh, you know, would I be. I would say a, a classic example might be Brazil, big supplier of iron ore and the like. That's kind of the one that pops out of my mind. But are there some winners? So. Are, so now I'm in Latin America. Which emerging, which currency has been the strongest against the U.S. dollar in the last year? Mexican peso at one time was up about 18% or so. What's going on in Mexico? And now more I read, I'm going, I think I got it. Mexico is one of the main beneficiaries of investors saying we can't rely on supply chains that are 6,000 miles away, we're going to put more plant in Mexico, which is a, a truck drive away. The friend-shoring trend, as they call that's, it. That's, what, that's what's happening. And so what I would say to anybody on emerging markets is you can't talk about it as one asset class right now. You really have to do your homework. And it's a pick and choose type of situation. I always hate it when a guest says you've got to do your homework, Nick. <laughs> so I, I want you to do the homework for us, which you have done. If there's one investment that we should all have, I mean, you're saying don't run up the emerging markets. They're all distinct. There were some winners. Right. There were some losers. Is there a clear winner? out of what's going on with China, world being reshaped as you described it. The country I now feel the most comfortable recommending is India. I followed the Indian economy early in my career and I said, ah, too bureaucratic, never gonna get its act together. And so the long story is they actually did make reforms in the 1990s to 
try to get rid of some of the red tape, try to reduce some of the tariff barriers and the like. What is going on in India is under Modi, the economy has really done very well. Its growth right now is 6 7%. It's mm-hmm. not showing signs of slowdown. Two, its population is not declining. In fact, it's overtaken China as the world's most populous country. But then three, what really impressed me, I actually read a commentary by Fareed uh, Zakaria, and uh, he was basically saying he went and visited his own country and came back amazed at how they still are now are using more of the internet cheap cell phones and the like, bring technology down to the level of, you know, the average Indian, not the, mm-hmm. the super. So, so I read that. And then just a few months ago, you had, you know, because India used to always like to be neutral between the U.S. and Right, uh, politically, Russia. yes. Yes. And they still are. But the U.S. is now definitely making overtures to the Indian government that, hey, let's get bring our ties closer together. You have delegations of American businessmen going over to India, just as they used to go over to China. And in fact, I was just reading that um, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan was in India giving a very upbeat talk about the long-term prospects for the country. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked by how Morgan's presence in India has grown. Uh, I used to work there 20 years ago. You know, what I would say is um, not every situation is, is going to be ideal, but it's got a lot going for it. Some people feel that Modi isn't as democratic as they would like. But again, if I go back to you and uh, do a let's compare and contrast, I'm reading right. about Mexico. And again, you see uh, money going into the country to, for production reasons, somewhat similar. But there's a big difference. When you look at the crime rate in Mexico, and um, I was reading that the fifth largest employer sector in, uh, in Mexico are the drug cartels. You've got people saying nearshoring is what I want to do. And um, Mexico has the ideal geographic location. So that's the big plus, And that's winning out for the time being. But I would argue the political issues in Mexico are more challenging than what I'm seeing in India. Nick Sargent, we're going to leave it there. So much to talk about. It's fascinating how uh, China, which at one point seemed unstoppable, there's a possibility that its economy model of economic growth is unraveling. So Nick Sargent, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Consuelo. If you'd like more information about Nick Sargent, go to our website, wealthtrack.com. And thank you, our listeners, for spending time with us as well. Please follow us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. And in the meantime, make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.